Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1008. Before we hear the reading of God's Word, let us pray. Father, we come before you humbly this morning, asking for your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of your Word. It is your power for the salvation of those who believe, Father, and we pray that you would be at work here in and through it this morning. Do not allow it to return to you void, but cause it by your power to bring forth among us a harvest of righteousness for the glory of your name and the good of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 13. This is the very word of God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That is the reading of God's word. The author says, these all died in faith. The people he is referring to, the these who have died, are clearly the people who he has mentioned in the previous paragraphs. Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham and, and Sarah, the, those men and women of faith whom he has been talking about. But at first glance, it seems like an odd statement. It seems, at least, uh, that Enoch is the obvious exception to the author's claim. After all, Enoch didn't die. On the contrary, the author himself says in, in verse 5 of this chapter that by faith he was taken up so that he should not see death. Why then does the author say, these all died? I want to suggest to you that Enoch doesn't really work against the point that the author is making. No doubt, the end of Enoch's earthly life was unusual. He, he didn't die. He was taken. But the point is this. His earthly life ended just the same. Each of these people that the author mentions, each of them were walking by faith throughout their life and were still walking by faith when the end of their life came. They walked by faith during their lives. That's what the author's been talking about. Abel, by faith, offered a better sacrifice. He, he walked by faith during his life. Enoch walked by faith such that he pleased God. Noah, by faith, built the ark. By faith, Abraham left his, his homeland that he might go and live as a foreigner in the land that God showed him. By faith, Sarah conceived even when she was well past the age of of childbearing. They, they lived and they walked by faith in this life. And what the author wants us to see is that they were still walking by faith 
when the end of their lives came. During this life, they, they walked by faith and they were commended by God for their faith. Their faith was acceptable to Him. And yet, they were still walking by faith when the end came. So what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Why, why is it significant to point out that they were still walking by faith at the end of their lives? To understand the significance of that, I think we have to remember how the author defined faith back in verse 1. Look back with me at, at what the author said. He, he defined faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And when we looked at that text several weeks ago, we, we saw that the things hoped for were the things that had been promised. It's not just whatever you want, whatever your, your heart desires, but rather it is the things that God had promised, the things that you are reasonably anticipating. For example, when God called Abraham, he, he made to him certain promises. He, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. That was the promise. It was a, a promise attached to the, the call. And, and when Abraham arrived in the land of Canaan, God said to him, To your offspring I will give this land. In other words, God attached certain promises to his call. God, God called Abraham to, to go. He, he called on him to, to leave and to, to follow into the unknown. But he promised that if Abraham would do this, if Abraham would respond to his call, then he would give him a land of his own and he would make his family into a great nation that would know his blessing and that would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it was the fulfillment of those promises that Abraham hoped for. That which was promised is that which he was looking for. And so then we can, we can define faith this way. Faith is not the assurance that God's going to give you whatever you've set your heart's desire upon. But faith is the assurance that God is going to give you all that He has promised. It's the conviction that God is going to do what He said He was going to do, even while the fulfillment remains unseen. And if that's the definition of faith, the faith is trusting God to do what He had promised before you see it then think about what it means to say that all these died in faith. It means that they died without seeing the fulfillment. In fact, this is, this is what the author says explicitly in the second part of, of verse 13. They died not having received the things promised. They died in faith, not in sight. They died waiting for what had been promised to them. They, they died before the fulfillment came. And that's the author's point. 
All these people walked by faith and they were commended by, by God for their faith. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Enoch pleased God. Noah became an heir of, of righteousness. Abraham and Sarah together became the, the father of many nations. They, they walked by faith. They were commended for their faith. But they did not receive the things promised in their lifetime. And this morning, I want us to think about the significance of that simple fact. I want us to, to unpack the significance of what it means to say that these all died in faith. And what we will see is this. We will see first that, that death, the end of this earthly life, is not the end of our hope. Our hope is not terminated by death. And our hope is not terminated by death because this earth is not the homeland which we seek. And because this earth is not the homeland that we seek, Therefore, we must live as strangers and exiles while we are here. Those are the three points I want us to unpack this morning. So let's, let's begin with the first, that death is not the end. It, it is not the negation of our hope. Now, that's a hard thing for us to, to really grasp. It's a hard thing for us to believe. We, we might say it's even impossible for us to believe in our natural selves. We, we naturally and, and indubitably believe that death is the end. Now, surveys of, of people across the United States, they, they suggest that most people today still believe in some sort of life after death. Most of your neighbors believe that there is, there is something after death. And yet, nevertheless, at the same time, despite their, their professed belief in a life after death, most people still live like they believe that this life is our one and only chance to experience good. This is the whole idea behind the, the proverbial bucket list. Have you ever heard of the, the bucket list? That list of things that you want to complete before you die, before you kick the bucket. You make such a list. Why? You, you make such a list because presumably you believe that this life is your chance to do those things. This life is your chance to, to experience those goods. You will no longer have the opportunity after you die. If you're going to go to Hawaii, you need to do it in this lifetime. If you're going to sail in the Caribbean, you, you need to do it now. If you're going to, to climb a mountain, you need to do it here and now, if you're going to write that great American novel, it has to be now. If you're, if you're going to experience any of these things, if you're going to do any of these things, if you're going to know these goods, now is the time. Because now, this life is the opportunity that you have to experience good. This is the way that most people live. This is the way that, that most people think, even those people who profess to believe in life after death. And because people tend to, to operate according to this default assumption, means that they tend to judge God's faithfulness according to their present reality. They judge God's faithfulness to His promises according to the fulfillment of those promises in this life. 
suspect you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I suspect you, you've made that judgment yourself. God has promised to heal our, our diseases, and yet, here and now in this life, we and those we, we love still find ourselves ravaged by all sorts of ailments and illnesses. What does that mean for God's promise? God has promised to, to set us free from sin. And yet, in this life, we still struggle to do the good we want to do while we continue doing the things we hate. What does that mean for God's promises? God has, has promised that He will end oppression and in, injustice, and yet, we still experience these and we, we see these daily in our own lives and, and around the world. God has promised to give us our daily bread. And yet many of us struggle to make ends meet week to week or month to month. What does all this mean for God's promises? When we find ourselves suffering in these ways, is it not easy for us to grumble? Is it not easy for us to begin to, to call into question God's faithfulness? God, this isn't what you promised. This isn't what I signed on for. Where is the fulfillment that you promised to your children? Maybe you even find yourself there this morning, maybe even this morning, your heart is grumbling against God because of what you see as the non-fulfillment of His promises. That is where you are. If you have ever been there, you need to hear the author say, all these died in faith. And you need to hear those words because you need to know that death is not the end of our hope. Death is a defeated enemy. In and through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, death has been disarmed. It can no longer harm the people of God. Its sting has been blunted. Its victory has been vacated. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, death for the believer is now gain. Just acknowledge how strange that sounds. Just acknowledge how, how against all that we feel in our natural selves that that statement is. And yet death is gain for the believer because our reception of all that has been promised lies on the other side of death. And so we must know this morning, we must believe in our hearts that this life is not all there is. This life is not our only chance to experience the good that God has promised. We must not think that death ends our chance to receive God's good blessings. We must believe that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, death is actually the beginning of life as it is meant to be for the people of God. And that actually brings us to the, the second point. Death is not the end of our hope because the earth 
is not our hoped-for homeland. The earth is not our inheritance. It is not what has been promised. We, we see this first in the phrase at the end of verse 13. Notice what the author says. He, he says that those who died in faith acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And we're going to come back to that phrase in, in a moment, but, but for now just notice what, what he says about them. He says they, they greeted the things hoped for. They, they greeted the things promised from afar, but they didn't possess them. And they knew, they, they acknowledged themselves to be strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, they did not regard this earth as the place where they would receive their inheritance. But rather, as the author says in verse 14, they were seeking a homeland. They were seeking what he calls a, a better Country. He says, people who speak thus, that is, people who refer to themselves as strangers and exiles, they clearly are seeking something else. They are seeking a homeland elsewhere. Because he says, look, if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, a land like that, they would have had an opportunity to return. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a difficult phrase. It's not immediately clear what the author is is referring to in, in verse 15. It seems like he is most likely referring to Abraham being called out of Ur, but if that's the case, why does he use the plural? Well, it seems that he most likely uses the plural because he's in effect saying that all of the descendants of Abraham left with him and in him. They were in his loins, as it is said elsewhere in Hebrews. They were in him when Abraham left. And so in a sense, they all left their homeland. They all went out and his point is this, if the patriarchs, if, if Abraham's children, if Isaac and, and Jacob and all of the, the, the tribes of the fathers of the tribes of Israel, if they had been thinking of and if they had been anticipating an earthly homeland, then they would not have been content to remain in Canaan as, as foreign sojourners forever. If they had been thinking of an earthly homeland, a, a homeland like the one that Abraham left behind, then sooner or later, when God didn't deliver, when they were still living in tents, eventually they would have returned home. They would have given up the hope. They would have discarded the promises. The only reason they were willing to remain in Canaan as foreigners from generation to generation is because they desired something better. They knew that what was promised was more than just an earthly homeland. They were looking for a heavenly city. And when I use those words, I, I have to be careful because those words are not easily understood in our day. We, we need to be careful because when the author speaks of a heavenly homeland as opposed to an earthly one, the contrast that he is drawing is not a contrast between a physical inheritance and a non-physical one. It's not a material land and an immaterial land. It's not an earthly existence and a spiritual existence, the way that we normally use those words today. But, but rather, the contrast that he is drawing is similar to the one that, that Paul himself draws in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Remember, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking about our future resurrection from the dead. And and as he speaks about our future resurrection, he contrasts the natural body, which we have now before death, with the spiritual body that we will receive at the resurrection. And when we hear those, those words, natural body, spiritual body, we can think material, immaterial, but that's not at all what Paul means. He's, he's not contrasting the physical with the non-physical, but rather he is saying that the body that we are going to have is going to be a body. It's going to have substance. It's going to be physical, but it's not going to be like the body we have now because it will be spiritual. It'll be spiritual in the sense that it'll be fully in harmony with, fully in accord with the Holy Spirit of God. In that day and age, we will not continue to wrestle against the, the, the ignorant passions of our flesh. In that day and age, those passions will not continue to wage war against our souls. In that day, we will be free of the defilement of sin. In that day, we will be fit for heaven, fit for life with God through Eternity. And so the contrast is is not between the physical and the non-physical, but rather the, the life of this age, the body we have here now, and the body that we will have in the age to come. That's the same contrast that the author of Hebrews is is drawing here. The the earthly city versus the heavenly city, the earthly homeland versus the heavenly inheritance is not a contrast between the the physical and the non-physical, but rather it is earth as it is now in this present evil age and earth as it will be in the age to come. There is coming a day when heaven will come to earth. There is coming a day when this creation will be made new, when all of the defilements and the brokenness and the pollution and the perversion of sin, all that is wrong under the curse will be made right. There is coming a day when he will make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the author wants us to see that our inheritance is of that coming age. Our inheritance is not a country here and now. Our inheritance is is not a a piece of land somewhere on this earth in all of its pollution and perversion and defilement. God has something far better in store for his people. He has an inheritance that is undefiled, unpolluted, and therefore indestructible and unfading in glory. That is the inheritance that is ours in Christ. That is the inheritance that the the author wants us to long for. That is the inheritance that is coming to God's people at the end of the age. So the author's point is that our inheritance, our homeland, is a homeland in the age to come. Think about what that means for us. It means, as we've already seen, that that we cannot judge God's faithfulness by the fulfillment of his promises here and now. That's something we're all tempted to do. It's, It's something that we almost do by default, but when we find ourselves doing it, when we find ourselves judging God according to our present circumstances, then we must take the tact of the psalmist who preaches truth to his soul. 
Think of Psalm 42. It's a familiar psalm. The, the, the psalmist begins, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. I wonder how you respond to those words. For a long time, I used to feel crushed by that verse. I used to, to, to just feel exposed as if I was entirely inadequate. I, I thought that the psalmist was expressing a deep communion and enjoyment with God that I just didn't know anything about. He longs for God as a deer pants for water. I'm not there. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever, have you ever been there? Have you felt crushed by that verse? Well, if so, you need to keep reading. Because I know what it is to, to feel crushed by that verse, but then I began to realize that what the psalmist was really expressing was thirst. He wasn't expressing deep contentment and satisfaction. He was expressing thirst. He was saying, my present experience is like thirst in a waterless desert. He was saying, I long for streams of water because I'm parched. I long for streams of water because, as he says later in the psalm, my only food at present is my tears. You see, the psalmist was experiencing in full the present non-fulfillment of God's promises. That was his present experience. And he was in anguish over it. And I know what that's like. I know what it is to feel the weight of what seems like God's forgetfulness, of God's non-fulfillment of His promises. I've been there. And so I need to see what the psalmist does. What, what does he do? He, he calls on his soul to hope. He, he speaks truth to himself. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, my salvation and my God. You hear it? He, he says, do not be in despair. Hope in God, for He is yet still your salvation. You don't yet see it. You're greeting it from afar. It is not yet your possession in full, but God is your salvation. He will do all that He has promised to do. Even in the moment of His anguish, He continues to have assurance of the things hoped for. He continues to walk by faith rather than sight. That's what we must learn to do. We must learn to cling to God's promises. We must learn to, to preach truth to ourselves, to remind ourselves of, of God's faithfulness. But you might be thinking that that's sort of a fruitless exercise. It's mere words. Saying something doesn't make it so. If God hasn't fulfilled His promises up to now, why should we believe that He ever will? It's a fair question, but there's a good answer. I don't think you'll be surprised to hear me say the answer is Jesus. Because God raised up Jesus from the dead, and because He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, 
And because the raised and enthroned Jesus has now given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee and seal of all that has been promised, of the inheritance that has been guaranteed to us, because all of this is true, we can now know for sure that we will without doubt receive everything that God has promised. Jesus' resurrection is our guarantee. He rose from the dead, victorious over the grave. In Him the fulfillment has begun. He is the first fruits of our salvation. And that's why it is so vital for us to know that he is, in fact, alive. That his resurrection was, was not something that took place in a corner. It was not something hidden, but it was a public event where he appeared to, to the women. He appeared to his apostles. He appeared to Thomas and let him touch him. He appeared to the 500 at one time. And Paul says, uh, writing to the Corinthians, and you know many of those 500, some of, most of them are still alive. He appeared publicly before going to be enthroned in heaven. And this, if that is not enough, He has not left us as orphans, but He has poured out on us the Spirit. The Spirit who is now even the guarantee and seal of all that is ours, of the inheritance that has been promised to us. And so in Jesus and through the Spirit, we have our guarantee. We know that God will be faithful and that even death cannot nullify what He has promised to us. This is the exact confidence that, that Paul expresses in his second letter to the Corinthians. He writes, We know that He who raised Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Therefore, because we know this, because we know Jesus, we do not lose heart. Though the outer man is wasting away, though in the present we experience the non-fulfillment of God's promises, though our bodies break down and our lives suffer, though the outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, the things of this earthly present. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that at present are still unseen. For the things that are seen now, they are transient. The things that yet remain unseen, they are eternal. The weight of glory that is coming, the weight of glory that is even being prepared for us by the present is beyond all Comparing. See, death, death is not the end of your hope. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, because death has been defeated, death is now gain. In this life, we will not receive all that has been promised. In this life, we will walk by faith, not by sight. But there is coming a day when faith will become sight. There is coming a day when all that God has promised will be ours forever and for all eternity. And that day is guaranteed to us by Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the present gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And so we must learn to judge God's faithfulness, not by our present circumstances, not by what we see, but by who we see. Who we see seated at the right hand of the Father and the majesty on high. We must learn to, to judge God's faithfulness even as Paul does. We must learn to say, we see Jesus. And therefore, we do not lose heart. We see Jesus and therefore, we know that all that has, prom has been promised will one day be ours. This earth is not our inheritance. But rather, we have an inheritance in the age to come that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in glory. And it is being kept for us even now by God's power in heaven, even as we are being kept for it. And in the present, yes, we suffer, but we can rejoice even in the midst of that suffering because we know that he will not fail to bring to completion the good work that he has begun, that the day is coming when we will receive, according to God's faithfulness, all that has been promised. And because we know this, in the meantime, we must live as sojourners and exiles on earth. This is what we see in verses 13 and 14. If all of this is true, if, if death is, is not the end of our hope, and if this earth is, is not the promised inheritance, then, then how are we to live in the present? And he sums that up in those words that we live now as strangers and exiles on earth. So what are the characteristics of a stranger and an exile on earth? I want, I want to briefly suggest to you three this morning. Knowing what we know of God's faithfulness, it sets us free first to live with a different ambition. What is your ambition? What is that that you're seeking after? Jesus said the Gentiles, they run after all these things, speaking of the things that we eat and the, the things that we wear, the treasures of this earth, the treasures that he himself said were destroyed by moth and rust and taken by thieves. But as people who are sojourners and exiles, people who know that, that our inheritance is not of this earth, we are free to have a different ambition. We are free to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not that we hate the things of this earth. The, the book that my men's group is, is doing this semester is actually called The Things of This Earth. And it's, it's a book which, which teaches us to receive the good things that God gives with thanksgiving. God gives good gifts to His children. We may enjoy them, but we do not mistake them for life. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in the, the treasures of this earth, and therefore the getting and the keeping of, of earthly treasures is not the focal point of our life. It is not that which we run after. It is not that which we devote ourselves to. We do not serve our bellies, as Paul said, because we know that our citizenship is in heaven. So the first question you need to ask yourself this morning is, have I been set free to seek a different kingdom? What is my ambition? Is your desire for earthly treasure 
Do you think and feel and act as if life consists in the abundance of earthly possessions? Or are you seeking a better homeland? Have you been set free from an earthly ambition that you might pursue a heavenly one? This is the first characteristic of an exile. He has a, a different ambition. Not only does he have a, a different ambition, but he, he also has a different culture. He lives differently. One who is a sojourner and an exile in a foreign land refuses to be conformed to the patterns of this world because he knows that it isn't his home. We've seen the contrast. There are those who come to live in the West and seek to assimilate as closely and as quickly as possible. They want to become Westerners. And there are those who come here and seek to maintain their home culture. Paul is, or the author is saying, we need to be the latter type. <laughs> yes, we live in this world, but we do not live as citizens of this world. It doesn't mean that we live as enemies. Again, think of Jeremiah making it clear to the Israelites as they go to uh, be exiles in Babylon. He says, you are to seek the shalom of the city. You are to seek the welfare of the place where you are, you are to live. We, we do not live as enemies of the state. We, we seek the blessing of the place where God has, has planted us. But we do not seek to be assimilated. We do not seek to conform to the patterns of this world. But rather, we live differently. Not just simply for the sake of being different. Not simply for the, for the sake of being odd. But rather, we live differently because our citizenship is in heaven. We live according to a different Culture, And that means that, that we cannot conform to the, the patterns of materialism that, that swirl around us. We, we cannot conform to the sexual ethic of the world that swirls around us. We, we cannot live according to the relativity of the, the world that, that is around us. We are citizens of a different culture. And we must be conformed to the patterns and the traditions of that culture. We must live as citizens of heaven even here and now. It's the picture that, that Paul gives us in, in so many of his letters as he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. No longer walk as the people of this world do. Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Live like a citizen of heaven because you are an exile and you belong to a different culture. But not only do you have a different culture, not only do you have a different ambition, but you also have a different allegiance. Again, it doesn't mean that we live as enemies of the state, not at all. But our first allegiance is to our king. Yes, we can be good citizens of whatever kingdom we find ourselves, whether that's the political state of the United States, whether that's the, the company that we work for, whether it's simply the, the personal kingdom of our own family, Whatever kingdom we identify with, we, we can be good citizens. We can serve our families. We can serve our, our employer. We can serve our country. But we always do so secondly. We always do so in subservience to our first allegiance. Our allegiance to our king. Think of the apostles. They were Jews, and they were proud to be Jews. But when the Jewish leaders came to them and said, you must no longer preach Jesus, they said, no, we must obey God rather than men. Our allegiance 
is not first to the Jewish nation. Our allegiance is to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the same for us today. Our first allegiance is not to the United States. Our first allegiance is not to our employer. Our first allegiance is not even to our families. Our first allegiance is to our King. And we always serve Him first. This is what it means to live as an exile and a stranger in this world. And if you think that sounds hard, if you, if you think that sounds uncomfortable, you're right. But hear this encouragement. Notice what the author of Hebrews says. He says, those who live this way, those who desire a better country, a, a heavenly one, of them God is not ashamed. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Have you ever been ashamed to be part of a group? Have you ever been ashamed to be associated with people? You sort of uh, hide your face and you go off and hide in the corner because the people that you're with are embarrassing you? We've had that. We, we know what it is. Sometimes it's your children. Sometimes it's your friends. But you know what it is. But would we not expect God to be ashamed of us? And yet, he says no. Those who desire his kingdom, not those who earn it, not those who live up to it, those who desire it, those who long to be fit for it, those who are looking to Jesus to, to make them fit for it, those who are not trusting in their own righteousness but are calling upon Him for His mercy, those who desire the kingdom, of them God is not ashamed. And not only is He not ashamed, but He has prepared for them a city. The inheritance is there, kept in heaven even now for us. And because it is there, and because it is kept by God's power, we can know for certain that those who are in the resurrected Lord by faith, they will one day receive it in full. And because we can walk by faith, even to death and even through death, until faith becomes sight, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness and we thank you for your grace. And we pray now that you would give us the grace we need to walk by faith until the end, until faith becomes sight, and until the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us is ours in full. Father, strengthen us to endure to that day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.